The text for this morning's message is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 28. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself his Savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. The question I want to raise this morning from this passage and and try to answer with you is one that's neglected, it seems to me, pretty much across the board in the feminist treatments of this passage. It's this. What is the positive practical difference in a marriage between a man's role as compared to Christ and a woman's role as compared to the church, Christ's body. Verse 22 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, And gave himself up for her. So husbands are compared to Christ. Wives are compared to the church. Husbands are compared to the head. Wives are compared to the body. Husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are told to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And my question is, what are the positive practical differences between a husband's role and a wife's role implied in these different comparisons. As I read Christian feminist books and articles on this passage of Scripture, my main disappointment is that they stop before they get to this question. They say lots of good things. They point out correctly how verse 21 teaches that there is a mutual submission between a husband and a wife. They point out correctly that the husband's headship after the analogy of Christ's is a servant headship, not a domineering one. They emphasize that the church's submission is not slavish, but free and willing. And to all that I say, Amen. But then they stop. And because they stop there, young people today are left with great ambiguity and confusion about the proper positive content of the roles of husband and wife in the marriage relationship. Christian single people and young couples today know that husbands and wives are not to lord it over each other. They know that they are to be servants of one another. They know that they are to put the other person's interests 
first. They know that they are not to be mindless and obsequious towards each other. They know the pitfalls of domination and servility. But if you ask the average young person today, tell me something positive. Say something positive about the distinction of your role as head and husband or your role as body in relation to a head and wife. Tell me something distinct and practical about the implications of being called head in this family. Most young people are at a loss to tell you anything positive about the meaning of these words. The treatments and interpretations of Ephesians 5 today are so defensive that they simply warn and warn and warn about what things don't mean and rarely get around to telling you what they do mean. What does headship mean, for goodness sakes, if it doesn't mean this, 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 and this? Every ordinary reader can come to Ephesians 5 and see something that feminist scholars neglect again and again. Namely, that after declaring that there is mutual submission in verse 21, Paul spends 12 verses unpacking distinctness in headship and submission. And if all he wanted us to hear was serve one another, he wouldn't have written those 12 verses. What we need today so desperately to hear from people a lot wiser than I am is not just what headship and submission don't mean, which everybody is telling us, but what they do mean. What is the God-intended distinction between a head and a body, between Christ and His church? What are some positive practical implications of these things? It is not enough to say, serve one another. Christ and the church serve one another. But Christ is Christ, and the church is the church. And if we obliterate the distinctions between Christ and His church, there is doctrinal and personal catastrophe. And I believe at a lower level there is great harm worked when we do not observe the distinctions between God-intended husbandness and God-intended wifeliness. They are not the same, according to this passage. We serve one another in different ways. So what I want to do on this Father's Day morning is simply, to the best of my understanding, not repeat what I said in the standard or in earlier sermons, but to just give some practical Statements about what I think headship means for the men in the household. Let's begin with this word head. Again and again and again to the point of weariness. You read and hear feminist Christians say that head does not mean leader. For example, Patricia Gundry writes in her book, Be Free Woman, the meaning of Head is not that of leader, but source, respect, and responsibility. And I surely don't want to disagree with those three wonderful words. 
husband is the source, should be, the source of strength and joy in the wife. The husband should have respect from his wife. The husband does have unique responsibility in the family. But that's not an alternative to leadership. That's the meaning of leadership. There are four reasons why we must insist exegetically that headship involves leadership. Number one, in the day in which Paul lived, it was a common image and metaphor to speak of the head as having supremacy or control or guidance or leadership of the body. The reason was twofold, as far as I can tell in reading the sources. One, the head sat on top of the body. And two, the head had the eyes to see where it was going, to guide the body. Philo, for example, who was a contemporary of Paul, said, quote, Nature conferred the leadership of the body on the head. So it was a common image. And you'll hear feminists say all the time, there was no sense in Greece where Paul was writing to that they thought of the head as a leader in relation to the body. That's simply not true. I can give you the verse and chapter in Philo and Stoic sources right out of TDNT, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, with all the sources, all right there. It's just twisting the data to say that. Second reason. Head, more importantly, is used in the Old Testament for leaders. Judges 11, 11. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. So plain that it was a common understanding in the Old Testament that the word head, both Rosh in Hebrew and Kephale in Greek, were used for leadership. Third, getting more close to the context, Ephesians 1, 21. Paul says, above every name Christ is, that is named, and God has put all things under his feet and has made him head over all things for the church. So the meaning of head here is not that he's the source, but that he's over and supreme and authority of all things. And when you get, finally, number four, to the very context in which we find ourselves, in chapter 5, verse 21, and you ask, well, what's the implication of headship right here? It says, wives, be subject to your husband for, and it's, the, it's the foundation, for the husband is the head of the wife. And if you ask, why does headship imply subjection? The answer is because it implies leadership. Anything else would not make sense. So for those four reasons, we must go on insisting that when Paul calls the husband head, he has leadership in mind. And I'm convinced that as long as this text stands in Scripture, feminist efforts to flatten out role distinctions between husband and wife and to evacuate headship of its leadership implications will continue to look like the Scripture twisting we are all inclined to do when we do not like what the Bible says. But there's no reason not to like what the Bible says. This is good news. It is not bad news. And those of you who are honest and look within deep, 
I think we'll recognize this. There is something deep in every man that comes into its own when he assumes a role of loving servant leadership in his family. There is something in a man's personhood that he knows is compromised when he lays down and lets his wife become the leader in the family. We find many ways to conceal our sense of frustration and failure from ourselves, but it is there. And I believe that deep down in every woman, there is something which rejoices and flourishes when she can freely and creatively support and complement the leadership of her husband. God's plan for marriage is beautiful. It is deeply fulfilling. It is not oppressive or fearful. It is freeing because it is God's deep design. And He loves us. He does not make things up to make us miserable. So let me spend the rest of the time trying to unpack four practical implications of headship for you men, whether you are married or maybe married or just want to support in prayer and fellowship those who are married. Number one, you should take the lead in the pursuit of your own personal relationship with God. No man will be a spiritual leader if he is not going deep with God in his private life, in his solitude. With God, He may try to be a leader, but it will not be spiritual leadership and it will not be Christ-like headship that he exercises. Therefore, every Christian who hopes to be a biblical husband and father must go hard after God in the solitude of his personal prayer and study life. He must devote himself to word, the word, and to Prayer. He must fight the fight of faith in his own soul before he can begin to lead his family out in spiritual warfare. Leadership, men, is something you are as much as something you do. If you come out of your solitude with the aroma of Christ about you, your wife and children will sense intuitively, here is a man who is at the helm with God on his shoulder to that I love to submit. Leadership techniques and strategies are all in vain if a man has not been with God. It's what you become in solitude with God, men, that creates the kind of leadership to which a wife will joyfully submit. The first step of leadership now, then, is to go hard after God for yourself in your relationship to him. And the difference between this step of leadership and the other three that I'm going to mention is that it is shared equally with the wife. No man's spirituality, no man's devotion can ever replace the wife's spirituality or devotion. There is no borrowed there is no substitute spirituality. The daughters of God must 
have direct dealings with their father. When Peter chose to give a word of praise about the women of old in 1 Peter 3 who submitted themselves to their husbands, the thing he said about them was they hoped in God. The foundation and goal of their lives was not their husband, but God. Noel was away for these past ten days and I was all alone in that big house and cooked and washed dishes and cleaned and sat and listened to the walls creak as I tried to go to sleep. And I thought a lot about never being together again. And those were times of deep joy for me for this reason. I thought... If I have a heart attack in the middle of the night here and somebody finds me in three days all shriveled up like a prune, the goal and the foundation of my wife's life will be unshaken. And the rock that my boys hold to will be there. Because I'm not it for her. It is God to whom wives look and God on whom wives rest so that when their man is gone, God remains. And he's enough. There is a difference, though, between a wife's pursuit of her own spiritual death and a husband's pursuit. And it's this. As the husband goes hard after God in the solitude of his chamber, he goes very consciously knowing this is the heart and soul and foundation of my leadership and headship. Without it, I will not be able to lead as I ought. When the wife goes, she does not think that way. She goes knowing this is the foundation of my motherhood. This is the foundation of my wifely support of my husband. This is the foundation of my ministry in the church and in the community. Those two different mindsets create a different kind of experience. Fire will take one element and make it hard and make another element and make it soft. And so femaleness and maleness can have different responses to the fire of God's solitude with us so there is a difference but both are absolutely crucial and the one I want to stress is that men you must go hard after God in the solitude of your life if you are going to be a spiritual leader at home there are a lot of men who respond all wrong to a wife who is growing spiritually he may say well I'm not like that. I, I, can't, I can't be that way. That's not me. I'll let her be the spiritual one in the family. I'll have bread on the table and a roof over the head. She can get her head in the clouds. I'm going to keep our feet on the ground. That'd be a good team, right? That's a good team. Put it together. Wrong. That is not biblical and in the end, not satisfying. Either for husband or for wife, to abdicate leadership at the spiritual, most important, 
all-encompassing level is to abdicate headship. What you've got left over, if you take spiritual leadership out of a man's headship, is a shell, and all manner of distortions emerge from that shell. Instead, what a husband ought to do when his wife is taking off spiritually is to humble himself, admit his need, and press on with her to know the Lord deeper and deeper. And let me make sure that you don't misunderstand. This does not mean that you must be the intellectual peer of your wife. Many husbands are married to intellectually superior women, verbally superior women. Talk circles around their men. And they conclude from that, no way I can lead this woman spiritually. That's not true. There is no necessary connection between intellectual capacity and spiritual power. Some of the most intellectual people in the world are the deadest spiritually. And some of the most powerful people spiritually are people who are simple intellectually. All that's needed is for you to love Jesus as much as your wife does and have as much zeal for the will of the Lord. I think of situations like this. A husband who never has, feels he can't get the family together for devotions. I'm going to talk about this in a minute. Because his wife is so superior to him. All he has to do to do what I'm thinking of as leadership is say, Hey kids, Go get the book. Honey, come on. Let's read together. Joey, open the book. Honey, why don't you read the story? And he's finished. And that's leadership. She's the reader. She does better at it. He has led his family. Any man can do that. And oh, what a difference it will make. But I've got more to say on that in a minute. I'll get ahead of myself if I say any more. Second area of leadership. After going hard after God yourself, take the lead, man, in shaping the moral and spiritual vision or goals of the family. A leader is somebody who takes the time and the initiative to think about where he wants people to be. You can't lead anybody anywhere if you haven't thought about where you want to go. And therefore, men, you must take time alone and initiative to pose questions to yourself about where you want the family to be in a year, to go in a year. You must lead out in thinking about these things. And I say lead out in not monopolize because every leader who is worth his salt knows that he must take into account the insights and the desires and the needs of his wife. But there is a leading out and a drawing in of her in this area. What I have in mind is a husband who takes the initiative in forming goals for the family. It begins in private meditation, prayer, thought as he poses himself questions about the life of the family. It proceeds out into discussion as she gets the family together or takes the wife out for dinner and they get it all out on the table and how they feel and what the issues are 
And he leads right on through that into a plan of action that they come to together. Headship of a husband is compromised if he takes no initiative in setting goals and constantly must be prodded by an alert wife who sees that things need to be done and want him to make some decisions. They may joke about this. Humor is used in many families to cover great tension in roles. They joke like this. He's laid back. Oh, he's so laid back. And she's the driver in the family. Isn't that neat? And it's not neat. Because a man knows in his deep heart that he should be leading out in decisions about lifestyle and doctrine and church affiliation and financial policies and the discipline of the children. And he knows that he is compromised and failing if he's just always watching television and has to be goaded out of his chair to make any decisions. And he feels guilty and miserable about it and covers it up with a thousand different ways. And his wife, who has to step in and take over in so many things, ultimately also feels compromised that she has no man to admire and respect as a leader in this family. It isn't cool. It isn't neat. The husband has a special responsibility to lead the family in biblical decisions on these matters. He shouldn't have to be nagged into action by an alert wife. Third, This act of leadership comes out of the second. It may just be a part of it, but I think it merits special attention. Take the lead, men, in gathering the family for prayer and scripture reading and worship. When the husband fails here, the soul of the marriage is in jeopardy. I think I would go so far as to say, men, that This one act of leadership is so important that if you would take the initiative here, almost everything else would fall into place. A hundred leadership issues would take their place if in this one crucial area you took the initiative instead of waiting for the wife to say, uh... Don't you want to lead in prayer? Honey, would you ask Grace? Kids, let's get together and see if Daddy would read with us. I close every premarital session with these words to young couples. Your devotional life as a couple is the soul and the heart of your marriage. If it begins to die, disease will creep up on the appendages. And you won't see the connection, but it's there. Where the heart is growing weak and dying, there will be gangrene on the appendages very soon. And so many people try to heal that and never realize what the problem is. If you're not growing spiritually in your devotional life together as a couple and a family, then you're dying. And men, it is your responsibility. Let me put in a parenthesis here of something I've been discovering as I think about my life with Noel and my weaknesses and 
people I talk to. There's a syndrome. I'm sure psychologists have discovered this before I have and have names for it, but I'm just learning it. There is something in every man that wants to be mothered by his wife and hates it when he's mothered. And there is something in every woman that wants to take the role of mother towards her husband and hates it when he forces her into that role. There is a love-hate relationship with leadership both ways. And I think the way out of that tangled mess is for the men to be strong, spiritually strong. The, I think probably most of the tensions in my marriage emerge when I become a baby towards Noel and want her to do something for me that mom always used to do or that I don't want to do because it's a little embarrassing or a little troublesome. Instead of my being strong and biting the bullet and doing some things that might be uncomfortable, sort of in a self-pitying little sniveling, I want you to do that. And then when you're done with all that and she does it and you kind of feel relief, you hate it. It's just yucky. You don't want to be that kind of a person. And yet there's something in you that does. And I think, men, it lies with us. First, women have their issues that they must deal with, but the main responsibility lies with you to grow up. It is our responsibility to make this marriage work first and to gather that family for devotions. When God came into the Garden of Eden, to take account of what had happened. It did not matter that Eve had eaten of the tree first. He said, Adam, where are you? When he knocks on your door at the judgment day and your wife answers the door, he's going to say, is your husband home? The word of the Lord to you men this morning is, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Adam? At the dinner table, when it's time to pray? At breakfast or bedtime, when the word should be laid open for these children and the family should pray? Where are you, Adam? And it'll be a bad thing when you have to say to the Lord on the judgment day, TV. I was at the TV. Men, here's the way it started again. Number one, and this is the hardest, humble yourselves before God and reckon with your weakness and fear. Number two, confess to your wife your failure. Number three, go away by yourself and plan some devotions. Won't ever happen if you don't plan it. Take five minutes. Open your Bible. Chop a chapter up into five parts. Tell the family. Next step. Things are going to be new around here. We're going to read the Bible at the breakfast table. Tomorrow morning. First three verses of Romans 8. And then at the breakfast table, you lead out. And then you say, honey, why don't you pray? If you feel a little uncomfortable praying. Take the lead. Men, 
And I promise you, when you get over the first hill, paradise will be on the horizon. And so many things will begin to clear up in your life. I tell you, if I didn't pray with Noel every day on my knees at bedtime, I don't know what would happen in the differences in our marriage. It's the soul, it's the strength, it's the heart, it's the marrow, it's the endurance. Do it, men. And here's the last one. It's very brief. Men, take the initiative and lead out in reconciliation. Now, I don't mean that a wife can't or shouldn't say she's sorry first. That's fine if she has the grace to do that. What I mean is, in the relationship between Christ and the church, who took the initiative to make it all right again? In the relationship between Christ and the church, who got off of His great throne of justice and went to work in mercy at Calvary to reconcile the world to Himself? Who went to Peter by the sea after three devastating denials and made it right again? And who has come to you again and again and again in your life to say, I'm ready, let's make it right, let's... Let's reconcile. Christ has done it, not you and not me. And husbands, if you want to be like Jesus, you have a prior responsibility to eat crow and make it right. Who's going to choke out the words... I'm, I'm sorry. I want it to be better. We'll find a lot of nifty grammatical ways of avoiding it's my fault. I want it to be better. Who's going to do it? Well, some of you women are, are real good at that, and we thank you. But men, don't you ever presume that headship means you have the right to wait for her to get on her knees. You don't have that right. In fact, you have a prior responsibility as the Christ-like member of this family as head to break the ice first. So when you're off in your separate corners of the house pouting, don't you say, well, this time it's her turn. Her fault. Doesn't matter if it's her fault. If it matters that it's her fault, the cross is of no effect. And that's a big burden to carry, and I lay it on you, knowing that you will find strength to bear it in Jesus Christ. When you do, when the courage and grace and humility are given you by the Lord, and you act like that, Christ will be exalted in your life and in your marriage. Your wife and her heart will rejoice in you and your children, if you have children, will rise up and call you blessed forevermore.